Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to air your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. On YouTube Live at politics slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Before you get started, please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds, KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support, that is there to provide what that nourishment that we need. 713-526-5738. KPFT.org. Visit us online. Contribute online. KPFT. 90.1 FM. You can visit us at kpft.org. Today, we have this special to talk to you about. If you read the news, you realize that this, this week it was revealed that over 100,000 people died of overdosing from opioids. That's a systemic problem. That's a horrendous problem. And it's a problem that our private sector, these corporations, have used our people as what again? Not guinea pigs, but just sources of income, even if it kills them. So today we are honored to have an interview that I did with Bruce Boise, who wrote the book, who was a whistleblower against Big Pharma. You're going to check out what he has to say. This is a second interview with us. He has a whole lot to say. We'll talk about that. I'm also, rem- uh, remember, this. We, we've been talking about climate crisis for a long time. Barbados' Prime Minister, Mia Motley, admonished rich countries and COP 90, at COP96 to really get engaged and start putting what they put, what they need to put into climate change. After all, these are the countries that have pumped all that CO2 and methane into the atmosphere beyond the proportions they represent in the world. And of course, we have uh, an evangelical preacher that shows you why many folks on the right are the way they are. We have a host who dinged, who dinged uh, this Republican operative. This is how you have to talk if you're going to get people thinking, if you're going to get people on your side, not on your side because you want them on your side, but on your side because you are right, because what you're doing is in their best interest. But there's also a segment that I'm doing on uh, a confused America. The Quinnipiac University poll came out 
couple of days ago or maybe yesterday, I don't quite remember. And what it showed is a very confused electorate. We have a people who have now placed the Republican Party ahead of the Democratic Party for winning the in 2022. But all the policies that they want are the policies that are being instituted right as we speak by Democrats. And the policies that Republicans say they get into power, they intend to repeal. People, I know the narrative, the information you're getting is not all that good. That's why we are here at Politics Done Right, hoping to enlighten, hoping to let folks know how it really is and not leave it up to Democratic politician, progressive politician, but the people, we the people, to get the job done. Before I go here, I want to give a big, 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 big thank you to Mike Hall. Thank you from Conroe, Texas. Thank you so kindly for your support, Politics Done Right. And likewise, Claudio Arena, thank you so kindly for supporting this program. We cannot do it without you. Sure that we have a program that is out there, not spinning the lies into truths, but spinning the narrative into bread and butter issues. Prime Minister Mia Matley of Barbados gave the opening at uh, COP26, World Leaders Summit. And I tell you, she was inspirational. I want you to listen to this and then we'll take it on the other side. There are a few things that I want to point out that I think her speech, as much as it was great, should have been a bit more striking in a particular respect. Let's listen to her and then we'll take it on the other side. How many more voices and how many more pictures of people must we see on these screens without being able to move? Or are we so blinded and hardened that we can no longer appreciate the cries of humanity? The pandemic has taught us that national solutions to global problems do not work. We come to Glasgow with global ambition to save our people and to save our planet. But we now find three gaps on mitigation, climate pledges or NDCs. Without more, we will leave the world on a pathway to 2.7 degrees and with more, we are still likely to get to 2 degrees. These commitments made by some are based on technologies yet to be developed and this is at best reckless and at worst dangerous. On finance, we are $20 billion short of the $100 billion. and this commitment even then might only be met in 2023. On adaptation, adaptation finance remains only at 25%, not the 50-50 split that was promised nor needed given the warming that is already taking place on this earth. Climate finance to frontline small island developing states declined by 25% in 2019. Failure to provide the critical finance and that of loss and damage is measured, my friends, in lives and livelihoods in our communities. This is immoral and it is unjust. If Glasgow is to deliver on the promises of Paris, it must close these three gaps. So I ask to you, what must we say to our people living on the front line in the Caribbean, in Africa, in Latin America, in the Pacific, when both ambition 
and regrettably some of the needed faces at Glasgow are not present. What excuse should we give for the failure? In the words of that Caribbean icon Eddie Grant, will they mourn us on the front line? When will we as world leaders across the world address the pressing issues that are truly causing our people angst and worry, whether it is climate or whether it is vaccines? Simply put, when will leaders lead? Our people are watching and our people are taking note. And are we really going to leave Scotland without the resolve and the ambition that is sorely needed to save lives and to save our planet? How many more voices and how many more pictures of people must we see on these screens without being able to move? Or are we so blinded and hardened that we can no longer appreciate the cries of humanity? I have been saying to Barbadians for many years that many hands make light work. Today, we need the correct mix of voices, ambition, and action. Do some leaders in this world believe that they can survive and thrive on their own? Have they not learned from the pandemic? Can there be peace and prosperity if one third of the world literally prospers and the other two thirds of the world live under siege and face calamitous threats to our well-being? What the world needs now, my friends, is that which is within the ambit of less than 200 persons who are willing and prepared to lead. Leaders must not fail those who elect them to lead. And I say to you, there is a sword that can cut down this Gordian knot, and it has been wielded before. The central banks of the wealthiest countries engaged in $25 trillion of quantitative easing in the last 13 years. $25 trillion. Of that, $9 trillion was in the last 18 months to fight the pandemic. Had we used that $25 trillion to purchase bonds, to finance the energy transition, or the transition of how we eat, or how we move ourselves in transport, we would now today be reaching that 1.5 degrees limit that is so vital to us. I say to you today in Glasgow that an annual increase in the SDRs of $500 billion a year for 20 years put in a trust to finance the transition is the real gap, Secretary General, that we need to close, not the 50 billion being proposed for adaptation. And if 500 billion sounds big to you, guess what? It is just 2% of the 25 trillion. This is the sword we need to wield. Our excitement one hour into this event is far less than it was six months ago leading up to this event. Can we, with those voices and these speeches from Sir David and others, find it within ourselves to get the resolve to bring Glasgow back on track? Or do we leave today believing that it was a failure before it starts? Our world, my friends, stands at a fork in the road. One no less significant than when the United Nations was formed in 1945. But then, 
the majority of our countries here did not exist. We exist now. The difference is we want to exist a hundred years from now. And if our existence is to mean anything, then we must act in the interest of all of our people who are dependent on us. And if we don't, we will allow the path of greed and selfishness to sow the seeds of our common destruction. The leaders of today, not 2030, not 2050, must make this choice. It is in our hands. And our people and our planet need it more than ever. We can work with who is ready to go because the train is ready to leave. And those who are not yet ready, we need to continue to ring circle and to remind them that their people, not our people, but their citizens need them to get on board as soon as possible. Code red, code red to the G7 countries. Code red, code red to the G20. Earth to cop, that's what it said. Earth to cop. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to listen, and for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 is what we need to survive. Two degrees, yes, SG, is a death sentence for the people of Antigua and Barbuda, for the people of the Maldives, for the people of Dominica and Fiji, for the people of Kenya and Mozambique, and yes, for the people of Samoa and Barbados. We do not want that dreaded death sentence. And we've come here today to say, try harder, try harder, because our people, the climate army, the world, the planet, needs our actions now, not next year, not in the next decade. Now, she pointed out all the other factors, the amount of monies that the wealthy countries should put in, etc., etc., etc. But I think there's, there's, a, there's a amount of blame that she refused to put into that speech, and let's, let's talk about them. The wealthy countries, the Western countries of the world, how did they get wealthy? And why is it that we should demand that they do the most to handle this climate crisis? Numero uno, what is the major culprit of the climate crisis right now? CO2 in the atmosphere. The riches of the G7, the riches of the G20 came about because of the amount of pollution that they threw into the air for their profits that went straight to those particular G7, G20 countries, etc. They also have been very extractive throughout the third world countries, so-called third world countries, whether it be bauxite, iron, diamonds, oil, whatever. So these other countries fed into the wealthier countries that were responsible for the vast majority of the pollution that we have right now going into the air. So when she talks about the commitment that we should have from these wealthy countries, it's not only a commitment that it should be, it should be a demand and these other countries should feel a responsibility that because of their doings, we may have Barbados underwater, we may have Samoa underwater, etc., etc., etc. So I think the third world countries, it's time now 
while they may not have military power, they have people power and other types of power. It is time for them to demand that the wealthy countries do their part, which is most to take care of our environmental crisis, to take care of this climate crisis. All right, folks, let's go ahead and go to the Quinnipiac poll. Let me put that on the screen for you. All right, this is what got to me, okay? More prefer, this, this, is, this is the outcome of the latest Quinnipiac poll. More prefer Republicans to win control of the House and the Senate. Quinnipiac University National Poll. 68% say higher prices or changing spending habits. I want to read some of this to you because this is fascinating. With election day in the interview mirror and both political parties setting their sights on the 2022 uh, midterms, election uh, plurality of Americans say to this election they want to support Republican Party control of both the House and the Senate. That's what they want. That is what they want. Americans say 46 to 38 percent. An eight-point differential. And by the way, the Republicans already have a six to seven-point margin. In other words, they can lose the popular vote by six to seven percent and still win the House because of gerrymandering. Okay? So we're talking about a swing of about 15 or 16 points. That is a landslide in the House if that were to occur. Okay? For the Republicans. But I want to show you, the, the title of the show today was are Americans confused to which I have to say yes? And why do I say that? Remember, they want they, 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 they said, uh, I want to read the part that, that says, uh, Americans, uh, says 46 to 40, 40%, they would like to see Republican Party in control. Among registered voters, 46 to 41% say they would like to see Republican control the Senate. That, okay. Among Republicans, 61% say they would be more likely to vote for a candidate who strongly embraces former President Trump. 61%. Wow. That's how Republicans, okay? In an open-ended question allowing for any answer, Americans were asked what they thought was the most important problems facing the country. And here are their answers in the order. Division and polarization. I love that they consider that a very big problem. The second one, 10% says the economy, 8% says immigration, 8% says inflation. American asks, which party would be best in handling the problem mentioned? The plurality, 46% say Republicans. Okay. I want you guys to understand this. They say Republicans. All right. A slight majority of Americans, 52%, say the Democratic Party has moved too far to the left. 6% say it has moved too far to the right. And 34% says it hasn't moved too far in either direction of plurality. 43% say the Republican Party hasn't moved too far in either direction. 35% say it's moved too far to the right. 13% says it moved too far to the left. So, that is a that is bad for Republicans in that 35% says it, too, it moved too far to the right, while when it comes to the, the people who said it's moved to the left, it's not that much. For, uh, I think it was for the, the, the Democrats, it, was a, you know, it wasn't that, that much. But anyhow, on President Biden, Americans give President Biden a, uh, a negative 36 to 53% job rating. That's amazing. 
In today's results, Republicans disapproved 94 to 4. Democrats approved 87 to 7. Independents disapproved 56-29. Again, again, that is not what freaked me out, however. A majority, listen to, listen to what freaks me out about this, this poll to show if Americans are confused or not. And again, numbers, you guys know the only thing I believe in is numbers or numbers. Only things I believe in are numbers. A majority, 57 to 37% support the roughly $1 trillion spending bill to improve the nation's roads, bridges, broadband, and other infrastructure products. It, uh, it's a dip since October, but it's still, which it was at 62%, a five-point dip, but it's still not a plurality, a majority. But it gets even better. It gets even better. A majority, 58% to 38% supports the roughly $2 trillion spending bill on social programs such as child care, education, family tax breaks, and expanding Medicare for seniors. Let's stop right there. Vamos a parar ahorita mismo, ahí mismo. That tells me, one, Americans are very confused. Two, Americans are very uninformed. And three, Democrats better get their butts off and start fighting with fire with fire. What am I saying here? Check this out. The bipartisan bill received only 19 Republicans. 19 Republicans supported the bipartisan infrastructure bill that's going to help people from Appalachia right to the south, to the east, to the west. Democrats, every single one of them supported the infrastructure bill on the Senate side and on the House side. The, the only folks that objected to the bill was the squad for objective reasons. All right? Now, so what we're saying here, you want the Republicans to take over to support policies that, with the expectation that they're going to support policies you want that they have already told you they don't want to have a damn thing to do with it. Is that confusion? Is that shooting yourself in the foot? But it gets worse. Worse, 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 worse. 58 to 38. In other words, we want the build, the build Back Better bill. We want it. We want those kids taken care of. We want Medicare expanded. We want all those things that Republicans say they are against. We don't only want it. We want it by a large majority. And we think that after this bill passes in 2022... We are going to elect Republicans who are somehow now going to support these bills that they completely disagree with, that they call socialism. You want the policies in these bills, according to the poll. Look, these are the same people being polled. I want you to get that in our cranios. These are the same people being polled. There are a lot of Republican politicians out there now that are complaining about Donald Trump. 
Donald Trump is doing all the wrong things. Donald Trump and the party has fallen for Donald Trump. And as such, we cannot support Donald Trump. As such, we cannot support the party. So we are complaining and we're not running and we're all, all, all of that is true. But what Anthony Gonzalez did is deeper. Uh, I am mostly in favor of what he had to say, but also there is one particular issue that proved his ideological problem is actually problematic for the entire country. Check this out. We'll take it on the other side. There are hopefully Republican voters and maybe even some Republican leaders watching you right now. What was your message to them? Two things. One, keep the faith. This country's been through a lot. We've fought through it and, and we've we've persevered. As much as I despise almost every policy of the Biden administration, the country can survive a round of bad policy. The country can't survive torching the Constitution. We have to hold fast to the Constitution. That needs to be the bedrock upon which we build our party and our movement. Uh, we have to be a party of ideas. We have to be a party of truth. The cold, hard truth is Donald Trump led, led us into a ditch on January 6th. The former president lied to us. He lied to every one of us. And in doing so, he cost us the House, the Senate, and the White House. I see fundamentally a, a person who shouldn't be able to hold office again because of what he did around January 6th. But I also see somebody who's an enormous political loser. And I don't know why anybody who wants to win elections going forward would follow that. I simply, like, I don't get it ethically. I certainly don't get it politically. Neither of them make sense. If he's the nominee again in 24, I will do everything I personally can to make sure he doesn't win. Now, I'm not voting for Democrats, whether that's find a viable third party or whether that's try to defeat him in primaries, whatever it is, um, that's going to be where I'll spend my time. Because you're worried about what he'll do to democracy? Yeah, I don't trust him. January 6th was the line that can't be crossed. January 6th was an unconstitutional attempt led by the president of the United States to overturn an, an American election and reinstall himself in power illegitimately. That's fallen nation territory. That's third world country territory. My family left Cuba to avoid that fate. I will not let it happen here. Can I stop him? I have no idea. But I believe as a citizen of this country who loves this country and respects the Constitution, that's my responsibility. Okay, this man got mostly everything right. But let me first touch on the ideological disease that he has. The fact that he says, I cannot vote for a Democrat, knowingly, or rather knowing, that not voting for the Democrat or trying to create a third party at this point in time or trying to uh, vote for an independent, in effect, will cause the election of that Republican more so than not. That is a, an, an almost constitu that's an almost a fact. In several instances, because of the seven-point nature for, for us to win, for Democrats to win the Congress, they have to outperform Republicans because of gerrymandering by 7%. So this congressman, if he really is a patriot, if he really cares about his country, he would bite his tongue and say, for this instance, given that I have stated that even if it's a policy I don't agree with, we can get over policy. We cannot get over uh, 
treachery, a traitor. We cannot get away with traitors of the country, which Donald Trump and the Republican Party has become. He He has stated the Republican Party no longer stands for truth. He has stated that the Republican Party no longer has ideas. He has stated that Donald Trump has driven the Republican Party into a ditch. He has told, he has stated that Donald Trump is a loser. All of these things are true that he stated. But when it comes to the conclusion of how to ensure that we have a constitutional government after he has already stated that Donald Trump operates unconstitutionally, implying as well that his followers, the Republican Party, uh, responds unconstitutionally in the country. It dictates that he doesn't play any games. It dictates that he does what's necessary to save the country. And in this current point in our history, there's only one party, one vote that the masses will support that will prevent the tyranny, that would prevent us from going into that fascist dictatorial state. And that is one has to vote not Republican at all, but vote for those who will do right at this point in time, the Democratic Party. That's just how it is. Today we have a special guest, a repeat guest. He's going to give us an update on how things are going with his case. Well, the case is over, but he's going to tell us a little bit more about the opioid epidemic. Bruce Boise worked for nearly 24 years in the pharmaceutical industry, first as a hospital representative, then as a sales manager in the Great Lakes region after losing his job as a whistleblower. We like that. He spent portions of the next 17 years working with the United States Justice Department on two separate false claims act cases against his former employer, Cephalon Tiva, a neurobiotech company. Bruce, welcome to Politics and Right Again. How are you doing today? Hey, very good. Thanks for having me again. Well, look, we want, first of all, let's get started because you actually wrote a book that detailed this entire stuff. Tell us a little bit about uh, why you wrote the book. I wrote the book. Well, first of all, my my lead counsel, uh, Peter Chatfield, wanted me to write the book uh, for like 10 years before. Mm-hmm. And he said, you really have to write the book. You got to tell the story of what, what went on and how you persevered and what occurred. But you were successful. And that's important. And so he said, you really want to write a book about what a whistleblower would be, what it is, sort of the inside scoop of that. And also to talk about how the opioid crisis came about. And so that's really the reason I initially started to write the book. But now, as the book's been out, I'm doing so much in patient advocacy and involved. There's so much to be involved in to help in the opioid crisis as little as I can, as as much work as I can put into it to help in like, for example, just getting the information out to even local addiction centers and, and national. I talk in a national level as well uh, to Fed Up and to other national organizations. So that's sort of what my role is now. But as it started with Peter's suggestion was to get the book out for describing a whistleblower. So your book pretty much explains to folks, hey, you can be a whistleblower. It's an important thing to do that, but recognize that there are some repercussions for doing that. But, you know, it's the many times it's a moral thing and absent you doing it, this the same crap goes on and on and on. Uh, 
you know, and, and, and I'll tell you, Alberto, this is sort of a, you know, you have careers and then you have like life careers, like mm-hmm. where you, you wind up working for somebody and you do this job and you make money and you get through life. This has been a change for me where it's been a, a real cause, a real need area that I see where more people need to join to help. And so that's what it's become now for me, that I, I'm pretty involved in it most, most of the time. Bruce, when, uh, when uh, your guy contacted me, I said, you know what? He said, you know, he, he kind of said something similar to that. And then my, my thing was like, I know exactly how you feel because you went from being this executive at this company to now you, you've changed profession. You're an advocate, you're a consumer advocate. You are, you wrote a book to tell folks how, you know, same thing we, I went through from having a software company to being an advocate for okay. progressive issues. So, I mean, uh, people don't, many times people don't understand the change and the change itself, how uh, not only difficult, but rewarding, because yes. I know, that right now. Tell me about how rewarding this is to you that you just know you're actually helping people to make a better life for themselves. Oh oh my gosh. Um, Probably the most significant thing that comes out of it is that, you know, I'm, I do my daily activity. Like I'm down in the Key West area now Uh um, visiting friends and I went out to dinner and the manager of the restaurant Hey, we haven't seen you a long time. What have you been doing? And I said, oh, I wrote a book. And they said, wrote, wrote a book. And most people didn't, didn't know that I was involved in the opioid crisis and I was involved in cases and wore a wire and all that stuff I, because you don't talk about that. Right. And so I go, well, it's like now I'm really busy with patient advocacy and things like that. And he's, he turned around and he said, he said, I'd love to get a, one of your books. And and, and I said, well, I think I got one in the, I'm driving. I got one in the truck. And I said, I got one in the, I'll just give you one. He said, okay. So he's, he's at the podium where he's supposed to be for the manager running a restaurant. He's reading it. He comes over and he goes, you know, I lost a relative, 23 years old, uh, athletic injury on fentanyl, got addicted, finally overdosed. And, and you hear those stories all the time that when you start talking about what you're doing now and it just rolls into this, they tell you about who, you know, what incident was, what, what family member may have died or, or even worse, what occurs as far as the collateral damage. It's like the mom overdosed, but the father and the kids separated and now are not together anymore. The family's gone. And so you run across those kind of things and you know you're on the right path of doing good work when you run across those kind of stories almost all the time, all the time. It, it's amazing to me how much this has affected our country. Let me tell you something, um, Bruce. America is a country which it's individualism not because people want to be individualistic, but it's what it's preached to people that they so often suffer in silence. We have a culture that suffers in silence and books like yours and the work that you do tell people it is okay 
to open up. I have relatives right now, family members right now, who I know have particular health issues, etc. And they would rather deal with a whole lot on their own as opposed to saying, you know what, if you just get help here, things can be so much better, not only for you, but for the family in general. So what you're doing is important work. I, 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 I so believe that. And, and, and for you too, because as you're having me on, it helps me get the message out and that's good stuff that you're doing so that, and all it is like somebody goes into a doctor's office and they don't want to tell the doctor what's going on, but they've got an idea, but they won't ask the question, ask the question, write the questions down, ask the question. It's not rocket science with this. If, you know, the doctor's there and the nurses are there to try to figure it out. I'm going through that with my brother right now. He won't, he doesn't want to talk to him about it. And, and, and it's like, all you got to do is, and all of a sudden after two months of treatment, he's better. And it's like, you, you don't have to suffer in silence. All you got to do is ask that question, step out of that. You don't have to be this suffering person. You can, you can resolve it. And so it's true. And that's that optimistic view I have in life. That's also true with the opioid crisis. We, we dare not lose our focus in all these other issues that we have. Now, the pandemic is, is horrible. I get it. And 500,000 people have died. And it's, it's bad. But you also can't stop a virus. And you can pay attention to cardiovascular disease, oncology issues, and, and you know, do your, your pre-medical work so that those workups, so that, you know, patients don't get caught with stage four cancer. They catch it earlier, right? And, and those are the questions. Those are the simple questions to get people to do. That's the patient advocacy part of it. You know, so um, before I, I want to kind of explore that a little bit further, but uh, tell me what's the state, as you see it, of the opioid crisis? You know that a lot of the companies that uh, you know about, uh, you know, they tried to put that under the ground. They tried not to make it make it seem as it as bad as it was. I know there is a there are a lot of suits that been settled right now. Uh, what's the state of the opioid um, epidemic right now? I, I think it breaks down into a couple different parts, right? So one, you got the pharmaceutical industry and their role in how they off-label the, the opioid products, uh, whether that's a fentanyl product or whether that was OxyContin. Um, and th those folks have been fined and, they're, and they've moved on because they sign off if, that no one can come back after them. Mm -hmm. after, and some of the fines are substantial and they're, they're finally getting to that. Also, the distributors. So they've gone after the distributors. So big drug company distributors have been fined as well. Also, um, there are consultants. So pharmaceutical management consultant, uh, Kinsey, is mm -hmm. the one that's been fined uh, 500, I think it was $573 million. They were doing the, the um, consulting and marketing for um, OxyContin and Purdue. Those are all in place and those are moving along. The issue with that is that we can't, uh, we cannot just forget about that they did that because greed leads to fraud, leads to patient death. You have to still be an advocate and still 
pay attention to what's going on, not only with pharmaceutical companies, but also the FDA. Now, uh, so in effect, uh, do you feel like uh, between the government and these pharmaceutical companies, you think that the resolution is fair or, you know, it's it's always hard to think that, well, the resolution of the corporation is fair, but what's your thoughts on that? Um, I, I know they're being hammered pretty hard right now. Mm-hmm. The trouble is, is that I've been on that side of it where I'm the plaintiff and they're the defendant. And I'll just say this, their defense is a military de- militant defense. In other words, they're not giving anybody up. They're not giving anybody's up. And so you, you've got to be able to keep track of what goes on. And if let's say, let's say a company X winds up having an opioid, they want to get to market. Well, just don't, just don't let them go to market and start all over again with another opioid just to, to, you know, solve their bottom line, pay attention to it as, as an advocate, you know, with different uh, people like, for example, prop uh, physicians for responsible opioid uh, prescribing those, those folks that are involved in that to still be involved in that and still keep track of that because there's one aspect of that. And then the other is that, you know, we got drugs coming in that are so cheap the fentanyl product or, or any of that they add to, you know, what, whatever's on the street, which is another issue by itself, right? You almost get addicted by a prescribed a prescription, like the mentioned the one kid that had a sports industry uh, in, in injury, and then he winds up get, having a fentanyl product. Then all of a sudden he gets addicted. Well, that kind of situation can occur, but it's not as relevant it maybe it's still relevant, but right. you you have so much coming into the country as a fentanyl product, and, and in fact, uh, um, methamphetamine is a big issue now coming into the East Coast areas. So so you get those those. That's why I said there's sort of two different divergent issues coming on on now. But you still can't take your eye off the ball with it. You still have to be cognizant of what goes on, and and people you know bad people do bad things. So. All right. Two more questions. The first one I'm asking yeah. you, and the first one is actually you. But the first, so be thinking about the, the the last one, which is what didn't I ask you that I wanted to ask that you wanted me to ask you? But we're going to hold off on that one. I just want okay. you to think about that in the background <laughs> because I remember the last time. But anyhow, let's go. <laughs> let's let, let's go ahead and um, say, with uh, after writing this book, you've changed your life. You're now doing a, a lot of uh, what I call altruistic things, things that, I, that, that, that are helping people. Take, give me some specifics as far as what you're going to be doing, not, what you've, not only what you've done, what you're going to be doing going forward. What I want to do is show people that if more of us take interests in these types of things, there's so many people that want to do other things, but are so scared to say, I am going to break from this and I'm going to start doing this, this, this altruistic thing that I've always wanted to do. And the opportunity is there. Take it. Go ahead. You know, one of the fascinating things is the speaking engagements or the things that I do that are, I'm really, you set off to say, oh, I'm going to promote the book. But what you get into is you get into different speaking engagements that really don't have, they have something to do with the book, but really what it ends up doing is that you're either educating or you're doing patient advocacy. 
And it's so rewarding. I'm telling you, it is so rewarding. Uh, there's a high school teacher where I live that that said, it'd be great if you came in and spoke to the staff and then had a had a, a session that you'd speak to the, the students. And I'm going to be doing that. And then there's uh, also there's a speaking engagement with a local addiction center. And all the things that I hear, like from higher up on a national level, it's interesting to go to addiction center and then listen to what they say. And, and they're on the ground. They're the foot soldiers on the ground. They bring the patients in and, and they have to deal with the family members and they have to deal with everything that goes on. And, and it's just, it, it's yeoman work. It's, it's unbelievable to, to experience that. And those are some of the things that, that in the future I'm doing more and more of. That is great because, uh, and and by the way, just want to say something. Yeah, I, I get a lot of folks that come on here with books and I get all these things with books. Let me just say the only time I, I, I go off with these books is people that you can actually see that that is what they're doing. In your in your, your stuff here, you can see that this is something you care about and you're just not plugging a book. You know, there are some people that are just plugging a book and there are some people that are actually making a material difference in society. And I consider you one of those. Oh, thank you. Anyhow, latter question. Yes. Why yes. didn't I ask you that you wanted me to ask you? Oh my gosh. I don't know what <laughs> I gave you. I gave you a heads up. <laughs> I know you gave me a heads up. I completely got a blank. I'm sorry. You're going to have to lead me into that. <laughs> well, anyhow, that, that, that's, that's not a problem. I, I think one of the things that I should have asked you is what's next. Is there another book coming? Uh, what's going on? Oh my gosh. There is another book coming. There is one coming. I really want to do, I know, I know you're going to, okay, so let's back up a little bit. Oh, this okay. is, this is, a, this is a, and I don't know whether I'm going to do this or not, but I think it needs to be done. Okay. This book is sort of a scolding. Okay. I want to and hear what, that. And, and what it is, is that this country can be better. Okay. And we're not. And, and there is a lot of areas that we need to do better on. And it's not just politics. It's not just, it's like, where did, when did we stop caring for our own Americans? When did we stop that? When did we, when did we stop? And, and uh, Alberto, Alberto, this is the number one thing. When did we stop paying attention to what we should do as humans, as Americans in this society? Like, don't, yes, you have a job, but there's more to your job than just doing your job and then clocking out. If you see something, say something. If you, if you see somebody in need, do a kind act during the day. Why, why not do something as a kind act all the time? You know, I, I, I think back to my grandmother and, and going to church and you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be a good boy. I'm going to be a good boy. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to be a good boy. But what are you doing Monday through Saturday? Right. Right. It's like, yes. I don't mean to preach in that sense. And I, but I think we all could be better if we looked at those, whatever those problems are we have as a country, we can solve those together. That's, that's, 
that's what I'm thinking of. Well, you know what, Bruce? That was the answer. And I tell you something else. Um, now that you've said that out loud, yes, we're going to hold you to that book. And I'll be, <laughs> I, I, and, and, and I, I want to be one of the first ones to interview you when you're done writing that book because you're a good writer, <laughs> author of Cold Comfort, One Man's Struggle to Stop the Illegal Marketing of Powerful Opioid Drugs and Save Lives. Senor Bruce Boys, thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We sit down and wonder, how can Donald Trump control so much of certain parts of America? And, you know, I've always spoken about the church's involvement in society and what it has done. Sometimes it can do good. Sometimes it can do bad. Sometimes we have pastors you have to wonder what they're paid for. You wonder why we can't get certain types of legislation through, etc. It is because these guys have control of the minds of many. I want you to check, take a look at this, and then we'll go ahead and take it on the other side, because this is simply amazing. One of the more unexpected developments in American politics in the last five years has been the enormous popularity of Donald Trump among the so-called values-voting evangelical community. Mr. Trump won 77% of the evangelical vote in 2016, and then he won 84% of it last year. My colleague Ann Thompson traveled just outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, to report on the friction over what it means to be an evangelical today. Under this flag-painted roof... Religion and politics mix. I want Trump to come back sooner than later. But you know who would be a lot better than Trump coming back? Jesus coming back. With gusto. Biden, you trouble Israel. Leftists, you trouble Israel. This is the Patriot Church on the outskirts of Knoxville, Tennessee. You unvaccinated people. You are causing the trouble in the land. That's what they say. Founded by Pastor Ken Peters. This nation was founded on predominantly Christian values by predominantly Christian people. We just want to keep that in play. We just want to keep our roots alive and not let this reconstruction, this tearing up of our nation's roots and a new set of values is being pushed on us. It literally is. So whose values are being pushed on you? These are leftist worldly values. They can't stand Christian culture. Why? Because we believe marriage is between a man and a woman. We believe that there are only two genders. We believe that life in the womb is actually human life and they're murdering human life for money. He's not afraid to take sides and thinks God does too. One thing I've learned about scripture and the Lord is God can use anybody. In the Bible, he even used a donkey. And if God can use a donkey, he can use President Trump. Do you think God is using President Trump? Absolutely. I think President Trump is is a miracle. I think God picked Donald Trump, an imperfect vessel, to be the champion of his people. That intertwining of patriotism, politics, and religion is attracting a devoted following. When you're in a culture where everybody's trying to silence you, it's great to be able to share how you really feel with people who feel the same way. Or just checking it out. Ashley saw it on CNN. And if they say something bad about it, it might be good. Peter's leading one side of the battle for the soul of the evangelical church. Some of the evangelical church, I think, is soft. I think they're cowardly, and they're trying to ride the fence between the left and and the right. And so that's kind of where the divide is. Here in the heart of the Bible Belt. I would say, as a person of faith who's been around church all my life, that the Bible Belt is unbuckling. 
Across town, Pastor Phil Nordstrom leads the Life Church. What do you mean that the Bible Belt is unbuckling? The branding of Christianity has suffered. I think that our association with um, political extremism has especially turned off a younger generation toward evangelicalism. So uh, one of the challenges we face right now is, who are we? What does it mean to be an evangelical? Nordstrom is decidedly old school, a pro-life pastor pointedly staying away from partisan politics on Sunday. The funny thing is, I'm probably personally pretty conservative, so I don't come across as like I'm a liberal evangelical but but people get the spirit get the feeling pretty quick that we're a pretty inclusive church that everyone's welcome um, that we're trying to uh, not uh, fight the culture wars from the pulpit we, we, can you believe that number one Donald Trump was sent by God God uses imperfect vessels Wow, what an imperfect vessel he used this time. But, I mean, the, 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 the pastor that came afterwards was more circumspect, and he, he called the reality. The Bible belt is unbuckling. What he didn't talk about is why is the Bible belt unbuckling, and that goes a lot into not only the financial angst of people, but that, 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 that continuous message of the other trying to take what is yours. I think progressives have a hell of an opportunity here that I think too often we leave alone. And I'm telling you this from experience in talking to people of different ideologies. Um, we many times, because we know that the policies we support, because we know that the types of things we support or what most people ultimately want if you strip ideology from it, we don't approach these people with enough, uh, what is the word that I want to say? It's not empathy because that we have. We don't, we don't, we don't give them a chance to, to drive to us as opposed to telling them to come to us, in my opinion. Um, I would be interested to see what you guys think about that, but um, if you look at the power that these preachers have on the people, we could break the preachers and in breaking the preachers, get to the people. Republicans, even if they don't, Republican strategists, that is, even if they don't agree with Donald Trump, they want to somehow make the fallacy, create a fallacy that they are there to govern, that they really know what they want. But here's a sad reality. I want you to listen to this and then we'll take it on the other side because I think it's important for folks to understand the fallacies that are out there. This isn't about political courage, though. Let's let's be clear. This is purely about getting reelected. And so Donald Trump, when he's the useful vessel, they go with Donald Trump. When you know infrastructure is up and they have an opportunity and they know their constituents want it, they will do that. It's the problem with the party at this point. It's become less oh, about actual policies and more about personality. Like, to be fair, 
Republicans have always liked infrastructure. You, I mean, that's not like they took a thing just to get yeah, reelected. I it's been infrastructure week for four years during Trump. They couldn't get it done. Yeah, if they, if they liked infrastructure so well, why didn't they get it done when they controlled it? He had a bigger number. And he had a bigger number. I don't know about that. Says, I believe you, but I don't know if the party actually believes that anymore. You know, we have to stop talking about what people talk about and talk about what people do. Uh, it is true. Donald Trump, every time his poll numbers went down or every time there's a problem, it would be infrastructure week because he knew that people really wanted infrastructure, but they had no desire to provide real infrastructure. Why? Because if you're going to provide real infrastructure, it means you couldn't give that humongous tax cut to the wealthy people that you gave and it would cost money. So they did not mind leaving everybody, just fooling everybody into believing that there will be infrastructure week. Now, Democrats have to remember one thing. You think you think all the promises that they're making right now to try to win the House is going to come to fruition? Of course not. It will not come to fruition. They'll tell you they'll give you the world, but you're going to get nothing. So those that are Democrats, it's incumbent for them to let it be known. Use examples of what occurred four years prior, uh, what's occurring now, and what is planned to occur in the what we intend to have happen in the future. Do not be fooled because, again, that is how elections are lost. You have to play to your strength and not on somebody else's field. Don't forget it. We got to get busy. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. On YouTube Live at politics slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Please remember to keep your community radio station KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support, that is there to provide that nourishment that we need. KPFT.org. Visit us online. Contribute online. KPFT 90.1 FM. You can visit us at KPFT.org. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program.